Hi, welcome to the Trash Talk podcast. This is episode four with Recycle Michael. I'm here interviewing Gary Liss. Gary Liss is really the one that deserves the credit for getting me into waste busting and uh, doing independent consulting work in the first place. Gary has over 45 years of experience in solid waste and recycling and is the president of his own consulting firm, Gary Liss and Associates. He helped develop zero waste plans, uh, more zero waste plans than anyone else in the U.S. Uh, for cities, including the city of L.A., Palo Alto, Oakland, Burbank, San Jose, city of Alameda, Oceanside, Glendale, Del Norte County, and outside of California, Austin, uh, Nelson, B.C., Telluride, Colorado, Big Island of Hawaii. Man, Gary, you have done a lot of zero waste plans. And, it's been uh, really just, fun. Yeah. Good. Fun's good. Yeah, and we just finished uh, uh, Zero Waste Plan for the city of Boston, and uh, that was last year. And uh, just last week, uh, the Zero Waste Plan that we de helped develop for the city of Baltimore was adopted unanimously by the Baltimore City Council. So we've yeah. only been uh, doing a lot around the country. It's been really exciting. Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, someday we're going to look back and say, how did we uh, make this switch? And, and hopefully you're in the history books because it looks like you made some major contributions to um, a lot of communities going in this direction, as well as, as helping to define like what zero waste is. That's a really interesting point. When we started down this path in 1997, um, we were all excited about the idea of zero waste and by 2002, we set up the Zero Waste International Alliance just to help define the terms and standards and principles that we were hoping to guide the uh, industry going forward. And at uh, Zero Waste International Alliance at zwia.org uh, is really uh, the one who has uh, uh, developed and curated with many other organizations uh, the international definition of zero waste, which... Uh, has been recently updated to say the conservation of all resources by means of responsible production, consumption, reuse, and recovery of products, packaging, and materials without burning and with no discharges to land, water, or air that threaten the environment or human health. And uh, that, that's what is the definition of zero waste. We don't want to burn our resources. Uh, we don't want any um, emissions. Um, as our goal, and uh, uh, we uh, work towards uh, recognizing those who are on the leadership uh, for that uh, by those who uh, divert over 90% of their materials from landfills, incinerators, and the environment as uh, leading-edge zero-waste businesses, facilities, and communities. Well, that's great. There's two things I want to touch on there in response to that. Um, first of all, I know a lot of people like to post online and say, oh, look at you know, these Scandinavian countries that are doing so good with their recycling where they're uh, doing waste to energy. And I just cringe and say, that's not zero waste. You know, it's, uh, it's burning trash and trash isn't a renewable resource. So stop calling it zero waste when you're, when you're doing that. But, uh, you're you're absolutely, absolutely right. And uh, a lot of people don't realize that for every ton in front of them, uh, 71 tons of uh, materials are wasted upstream from mining, manufacturing, and distribution of products. 
that's why we can't uh, recycle our way. Uh, that's why uh, out, out of this, that's why we can't uh, burn it because we're destroying the resources and using them once. Uh, we need to um, bring the organics back to the soil uh, through composting and anaerobic digestion. And we need to uh, uh, bring the materials uh, back into the economy uh, through uh, uh, reuse and recycling. Yeah, totally. And and I, I feel like that's a big disconnect where people just think, oh, burning is uh, is some sort of you know reclaiming of that uh, energy or materials, but it's really not. And you also brought up the point of uh, seventy-one tons upstream for every ton of material downstream, and that's right. a huge uh, concept in, in zero waste is going upstream, right? We're exactly. not looking at these end of pipe solutions. We're trying to tackle this. Well, it's referred to often as a waste berg, right? Instead of an mm -hmm. iceberg where 70% or 80% of the, the total mass is below the surface and you just see the top floating. Trash is exactly. kind of like that. Like where every uh, trash can you put out on the street to get picked up, there's 71 trash cans full of uh, trash that were generated to make that trash somewhere upstream or in, in the manufacturing and resource extraction pipeline. Exactly. And, and for those who advocate for burning the materials, what we highlight is that you can conserve five times more energy than you can produce by burning it. Uh, and the, that's uh, because of those 71 tons buried upstream. Uh, if you think about all the activities that uh, lead to materials uh, being used uh, by a business or a home, if you think about all the uh, work that went into making those products upstream, uh, the mining, the manufacturing, the distribution of those products to get it to you, you're uh, not only de decreasing that 71 tons of wasting, you're also decreasing the amount of energy used if we uh, reuse and re uh, recycle and compost all those materials rather than burning it. And that's on the order of uh, uh, about uh, three to five times more energy being able to be conserved than produced by burning of waste. Right. And uh, I think, you know, we might need an illustrative example here. And I think aluminum is, is a great example. We recycle a lot of aluminum cans, even though it's still maybe only 30% of cans, uh, or maybe more. I don't, I'm not sure what the numbers are these days. Aluminum cans enjoy the highest recycling rate out of any container, but um, there's still a lot that goes to landfills. I've read things that were like, oh, Every three months, we landfill enough aluminum to rebuild our entire airline fleet in the U.S. Uh, every three months. And that's a lot of aluminum, but it is even more bauxite and like rock mm. and everything from Australia to make that aluminum. It's not just the, the tonnage of like the entire airline fleet thrown away every three months. It's, it's like 71 times that or more in the case of aluminum where you need you know, tons and tons of rock to get enough bauxite to make a can. And not that only uses you, a, that uses a lot of energy. Uh, right. Yeah. You got these big diesel that. trucks mining the, uh, the ore, and then you're using diesel to operate these crushing machines and then you're uh, refining. And then they don't even make the aluminum close to where they mine the bauxite, right? They have to ship that across uh, oceans to find cheaper sources of electricity because it's you know an electricity intensive process to make aluminum from bauxite so but yeah you're burning shipping oil and uh, container ships going across the world and then you make 
aluminum, but it's not like they're making aluminum cans straight out of bauxite. They're making, you know, sheets of aluminum and rolls, and then that gets shipped around and packaged, and then, you know, that further manufacturing, and then that gets shipped around and packaged and unpackaged. I mean, how many cardboard boxes do you think an, an aluminum can goes through before it actually hits the shelf? <laughs> Uh, quite quite a few, although uh, these days, uh, uh, one of the lowest hanging fruits is the use of reusable shipping containers. Uh, um, Toyota saved a billion dollars over a 10-year period by uh, uh, changing from having their uh, products come in for their manufacturing of, of their automobiles in wood and metal crates rather than other types of boxes, and they uh, saved a lot of money by going to reuse. Reusables are uh, uh, some of the best opportunities for zero waste. And, and in fact, um, the, the, uh, the whole idea about that ups- upstream 71 tons uh, message really underscores uh, the need to reduce, eliminate wasteful practices. And, and businesses have saved the most money by eliminating wasteful practices. You know, a lot of people talk about source reduction and waste prevention, and uh, if it's often given short shrift, particularly in municipalities, because they haven't been clear on on what they can do to influence that. But the leaders in zero waste at businesses have all um, found that uh, the reduction, the rethinking, the redesign of their processes and their products uh, is where the biggest savings uh, uh, come from. Right, and that took me a while to wrap my head around that, but now I understand pretty clearly that it's um, if it's a single-use disposable item, then you're gonna have that 71 tons, or 71X factor upstream uh, every time you use something. It's like 71 of those things. So say you use a single-use water bottle it's like 71 water bottles worth of waste up there uh, on average. Now, maybe not for that specific item, but switching to a reusable container might have 71 times uh, its weight upstream, say my steel water bottle. There might be some manufacturing waste and transportation waste, all of that associated with it. But I've used my bottle more than 71 times, so it's averaged out to a lot less than uh, 71 single-use bottle or yeah, 71 single-use bottles that all have 71 times their weight upstream. It's it's just... Right. Well, and if you look at one of the hottest issues today, the COVID-19, there's a lot of panic uh, uh, and anxiety about uh, will the hospitals have the equipment, the pr- uh, personal protective equipment they need. And, you know, that includes gowns and masks and shields and gloves. And uh, I'm feeling that uh, they could uh, do a, uh, a lot better in meeting their, their goals through uh, the use of reusables. And hospital gowns is probably one of the best examples of that instead of all those uh, disposable gowns that have uh, become common for uh, uh, many hospital uh, locations. Bring back the old uh, cloth gowns that would be laundered after their use and and that would uh, suffice for uh, uh, these purposes. So if we can really put our head around rethinking and redesigning issues, 
uh, we can find often the most efficient way of doing it. And that's what zero waste is all about. It's all about efficiency. The average business in America, uh, of all the materials they buy, 90 to 95% of their materials are thrown away, right. uh, wasted. And so uh, zero waste is all about how do we do things more efficiently. When you look at uh, companies like General Motors, who uh, developed zero waste programs for um, their major manufacturing facilities, they saved a billion dollars a year by getting to 97% diversion on average for over 120 different facilities. You know, th these are uh, huge uh, winning opportunities for businesses. And one of the reasons why communities are starting to get more interested in zero waste because it helps their businesses be more efficient and be uh, able to compete in a global economy. Yeah, I mean, with this COVID-19 thing, my uh, reusables program, Sudbusters, has completely been put on hold. I mean, no one's uh, doing special events and single-use disposables are, are definitely being favored at the moment, unfortunately. We anticipate we'll be able to go back to doing reusables in the near future, but we had to pivot to make hand sanitizer. We're offering organic hand sanitizer right now. And uh, I realized that, you know, packaging is in short supply. The whole supply chain is kind of being disrupted. So it's been hard to find good solutions for uh, packaging. And what we did was uh, decide to use a, a reusable container and charge a high deposit to get those bottles back so we can refill them and reuse them because there's not really a, a guarantee that we could get more packaging in the first place. It's also a huge uh, percentage of the cost of products. Right. You know, thinking about like the label and, and the package being like a couple bucks each on a product that you're trying to sell for like five, 10 bucks. It's a huge percentage of um, what we're paying for is, is just this, uh, this container and packaging. Well, and deposits are a great example of one of the tools we advocate for in zero waste. We, we talk in terms of developing incentives to get both residents and businesses to uh, do the right thing. And deposits is, is a great tool. The uh, uh, soft drink bottle like container deposits, so generally known as bottle bills around the country, um, have uh, resulted in you know, high levels of quality material coming back and uh, being able to be uh, recycled uh, in a way that uh, hasn't been as successful in recent years uh, with curbside recycling. So the uh, bottle bill materials are much higher quality material. Uh, they come back in a very clean form uh, because people are bringing the actual bottles to get their deposits back. And uh, that, that has, uh, particularly around the country, uh, been been uh, a really great way of getting the quality materials that we need to recycle in today's marketplace uh, when uh, since uh, China closed the door on us uh, uh, sending them a bunch of uh, quality material and calling it recycling and looking to them to uh, clean it up. Uh, deposits like you're doing, Michael, are exactly the, uh, uh, the way to go on lots of different products uh, for the future. And uh, we're, we're seeing uh, uh, the return of returnable bottles, uh, uh, similarly uh, uh, being pioneered in California and elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, I, for one, can't wait because I know Coca-Cola, for example, the single 
largest producer of uh, single-use disposable plastic waste in the world has shifted away from their uh, reusable bottle program that they used to have and now have this uh, single-use disposable plastic bottle that doesn't even have any recycled content and they're just uh, dumping what millions billions of tons of this stuff into our environment it's such a shame but there used to be a system that worked well they were refilled and and all that i think it's just a transportation issue right well transportation and marketing it was actually uh, the marketers that uh, wanted to be able to sell a, a product nationwide that fo- focused on developing one-way systems so they can market the same product all over the country and that eliminated a lot of the uh, small local breweries that employed lots of people all over the country um, uh, and replaced it with a mass marketing machine that was successful in meeting its uh, uh, revenue targets, but had a devastating effect on uh, the environment by uh, uh, eliminating all those reusable systems. In uh, Canada, like uh, the province of Ontario, uh, they've continued the reusable uh, bottle system. So the brewers of Ontario, uh, for example, have a a great deposit system uh, going there that gets 90 plus percent of uh, all the bottles uh, back on a regular basis to be refilled and reused multiple times. So the uh, uh, we're seeing some uh, uh, change in uh, some of the larger manufacturers um, uh, in terms of their policies and advocacy. Uh, Nestle, for example, has in recent um, days in, in this past year supported the idea of minimum content legislation being proposed on a state-level basis around the country. And minimum content uh, requires that a certain amount of recycled material be used to make the new products and new bottles uh, that they would use for all their their uh, uh, products that they put out. And that's a sea change from, um, uh, as you say, Coca-Cola and others uh, uh, advocating for uh, uh, not having a bottle bill, not having deposit systems, and trying to find alternatives uh, uh, to that, which they've been talking about for 20, 30 years and haven't uh, successfully implemented uh, the plastics industry is is way behind uh, all the other commodities in terms of its assuming its fair share of responsibility for solving uh, not only the, uh, the litter problems associated with plastics we're seeing all over the environment and in the oceans, but also the uh, the contribution to climate change that uh, all all these. Uh, um, destructive efforts uh, uh, actually uh, are much more uh, destructive of the uh, the climate, and uh, zero waste can help address climate change in a very significant way. Well, that's a great uh, example of a piece of legislation that will actually have some impact, because if we were strictly to leave this up to the market and see what's, uh, you know, the cheapest to do, it seems like there's not going to be a lot of demand for recycled content products because consumers aren't um, savvy enough to demand that or, or look for that if it's not uh, readily available. Uh, they might choose it if it's an easy option, but I don't see a lot of people choosing um, you know, to buy a recycled bottle 
over a, a virgin bottle when it's really the product that they're after, not the packaging. Most people don't care so much about that. And right. there's and also been just like a glut of cheap oil and all these new companies coming in trying to make plastic out of natural gas. And mm -hmm. so it's concerning to me that there's just going to be a huge increase in the amount of plastic that is going to be produced here in the U.S. and probably globally. But, you know, how are we using or producing more and more virgin plastic every time without, you know, demanding that there's something happening with the with the scrap plastic? Exactly. Um, it's uh, people liken it to nuclear energy that, you know, one of the fatal flaws of nuclear energy that was going to be too cheap to, me to meter uh, when they promoted it first in the 50s was that the, uh, they had no place to uh, properly dispose of the end product of their uh, system. And, and that's what's happened with plastics, that uh, they foisted the, the uh, problem of litter in the environment, um, which is uh, causing huge problems uh, with our entire food chain now. It's not just litter. It's, it's, uh, it's ecosystem-wide. Uh, devastating, uh, having uh, hazardous chemicals that adhere to the plastics that fish eat, that uh, we then eat, is a, a major uh, concern. So the, uh, you know, get, getting the industry to, to do better at uh, taking responsibility and uh, for, for the end of their uh, product's life uh, is a critical element of, uh, of what we'll be looking for in the future. And uh, there's a worldwide movement called Break Free from Plastic. Um, there's multiple uh, media um, uh, coverage of uh, uh, the plastics uh, problems, including uh, the latest Frontline by PBS uh, had a major special on, on the plastics industry lying about uh, uh, what they were doing uh, to address the plastics in the 90s and uh, um, and uh, been lots of uh, exposés about uh, the need for uh, better systems to deal with the uh, plastics. And, and the best way to deal with it is uh, reduce, uh, re uh, get into uh, rethinking uh, how much uh, uh, plastics we're using, get back to re uh, the reusable uh, containers, uh, like you mentioned, your uh, uh, reusable uh, steel uh, thermos is, uh, uh, or water bottle is, is uh, far preferable than all the uh, single-use plastics. We're seeing that also in the food industry, um, reusables um, uh, are uh, being uh, uh, promoted uh, heavily now uh, with all different types of possibilities for re reusing food, foodware uh, containers. Berkeley has a, one of the cutting edge uh, legislation at the local level to put a 25 cent fee on each uh, single use cup that are used by single use restaurants to consumers to encourage them to bring their own cups um, and uh, for takeout packaging to be reusable with reusable uh, foodware being washed. Uh, there's some new systems out there where people don't have to bring their own. They, they can get a re, uh, their, their things to go on a reusable uh, container for food uh, taking, taking out from restaurants and then having uh, them bring back 
those containers to then be washed by the uh, restaurant. And, and there's actually syst- um, uh, third-party systems that are helping with those reusable foodware systems. Uh, and, and those are being pioneered a lot on university campuses and other cafeteria uh, models, uh, but there's a variety of uh, businesses in that space that are uh, uh, implementing those types of programs now. Yeah, I see those as a, a ray of hope, but well, I mean, what are we going to do when these uh, plastic manufacturing plants come online and we're just seeing a glut of super cheap single-use uh, plastics getting put out on the market? Yeah, that's what the initiative is about in in California, to make it clear that we don't want that by banning plastics. (laughs) Right. That's pretty much the way you got to go. But uh, thinking back to some of these plastic bag bans and other things that both you and I have been involved in over time, one thing that you once uh, told me that really sticks in my head and I find myself repeating often is, don't ban without a plan. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. And and the... um, in the initiative that's uh, on the November uh, 2020 ballot in California or is working to get signatures to be on the ballot would both uh, ban uh, certain single-use plastics and the plan is uh, included in the initiative to help fund setting up new recycling programs uh, to handle uh, uh, other aspects of of the alternative uh, systems that would be put in place. So, uh, definitely need to have plans on what to do about the bans, but the uh, when you say, what do we do about these uh, major industries coming online, major new factories coming online, we need to be clear, uh, that's what social policy is all about. It, 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 within the free market system, the, it's, it's up to government to set policies that provide a level playing field for everyone to do the right thing and we figure out what that right thing is, advocate for that to be done in the policy. And if they're not responsible, they don't have a good system, ban it um, is, is particularly uh, effective. In Massachusetts, uh, banned about 15 different material and product types from landfilling and incineration. And that's helped to develop new industries that will spring up to reuse and recycle uh, those materials. In California, the construction demolition arena is a great example where virtually no public money went into setting up C&D construction demolition recycling facilities because uh, the tool that was used of public policy was for each community to adopt a C&D construction demolition recycling goal and require anyone that was building something, a building or uh, Uh, demolishing or remodeling a major uh, remodel job uh, that they would have to meet uh, a targeted uh, amount of recycling goal. Uh, Initially, it was 50% recycling of uh, everything that uh, was uh, used in the project. And uh, in recent years, uh, communities have increased uh, that target uh, that people have to meet. And because those communities adopted those policies, then um, service companies that could collect those materials to recycle them and process them were able to go to the bank and say, I'm going to build a facility and and buy trucks to collect the material, take it to my facility, and help the contractors meet their C&D recycling goals. 
And it's those types of policies that we advocate a lot in zero waste plans for communities to adopt. On the zerowasteusa.org website, there's a uh, a tab uh, about uh, different tools and resources that communities could use. And one of them is a zero waste planning checklist with about 70 or 80 different types of policies like this that communities have adopted around the country and links um, are available uh, through a, a, a similar website developed at US EPA called Managing and Transforming Waste Streams. And uh, th- those are great examples of how policies are needed to help the industry understand what the expectations are of working in a sustainable way to help us address climate change, to create more jobs, uh, to be more efficient as a society, and for the individual businesses to be better uh, partners in a sustainable, resilient, healthy future that we're all striving for. I, I hear you. And actually, um, the first job I had in recycling was at UC Davis as a student doing their construction and demolition recycling program. Oh, and so I'm, I'm quite familiar with what you're saying. And we had uh, beat a lot of these communities in implementing recycling targets and diversion targets for construction on campus. And they were pretty aggressive. And it was more like you wouldn't be able to get a contract again if you didn't meet these goals current projects for right and the universities the universities are are really exciting they've really embraced the goals of climate change around the country many college stadiums are part of the green sports alliance which are now reporting uh, oh yeah i totally want to get into that but just before we move on from the uh, construction recycling thing i know that c and d murfs or material recovery facilities have popped up all over the place like you were describing people are able to go get loans and create facilities to divert this highly recyclable material, wood, metal, right. you know, gypsum, stuff like that. It's very common construction materials can be easily recycled. The problem yeah. that I see is that everyone seems to be going toward these single stream solutions and then sorting out again the material once it's, you know, they mix it together, haul it over to a facility and they have to separate it again. Some places are using giant robots, some are using hands, manual labor, but the approach that I took at UC Davis was working with the individual contractors and saying, look, we need a plan for different phases of construction for what types of materials you're going to be generating as waste and then have separate dumpsters for those things. So you'd have your one general waste dumpster for the non-recyclable stuff, but we would say, all right, you're doing framing, let's put a wood dumpster out here. Are you doing metalwork? Got to have a metal dumpster. Are you going to be doing uh, drywall now? Got to have the gypsum dumpster. And, and, and that allowed and that, us to, well, and, sorry. And, that, yeah. and that's part of the um, uh, C&D recycling ordinances that I was referring to, that uh, many communities have required source separation projects that have that type of material. And that's particularly true for construction projects. Demolition projects is a little bit harder because right. materials are already mixed together. So you need a, both the source separation uh, systems and the the mixed processing systems. uh, You also have space issues, you know, like in San Francisco, for example, a construction site might not have the ability to site multiple 40-yard roll-offs while, uh, you know, an expansive campus like UC Davis would have an easier time with that. So 
you know, right. you got to have different systems for different situations, and and, what and you can divide those containers up into component into uh, yeah. parts, and uh, yeah, sure, uh, there, there's different ways of dealing with that um, for sure. But also on the demolition front, uh, I've seen some types of legislation that require people that are going to demolish a building to open the building up for scavengers or salvagers to come through and you know take windows or door frames oh, yeah. or old beams and. You know, like there, especially in construction, demolition work has um, opened up access to materials that are not even available anymore, like uh, well, long or short grain hardwoods, exactly uh, things like that. It just you know we've we've decimated our forest to the point where you can't even get old growth uh, redwood anymore, and that's uh, what's called de deconstruction and. Um, um, some of the early leaders were uh, Katati, uh, California, uh, required advertising in a local newspaper when someone was going to demolish a, a building for a certain size that they had to advertise that they were going to do it if anybody wants to salvage materials and products like the wood, wood doors and the windows like you're mentioning and, and lots of other great reusable stuff that they they had to notify people that that was coming up and then the people who were in the business of deconstruction could monitor uh, those types of ads in the, in the paper and, and get there while the projects were also getting their permits. One of the biggest challenges for deconstruction is once they've gotten all their permits, they want to get it down, knock it down and out of the way as quickly as possible. So it's both a space issue and a timing issue and, and that's where the Katari audience would ordinance was particularly helpful. In Portland, they've adopted a, a, one of the leading uh, deconstruction ordinances in recent years that uh, requires the deconstruction of, of any building of historical significance. Um, so any buildings uh, before a certain year, I think it was around 1916 or something like that, they, uh, they were required to deconstruct first before uh, demolishing. So get all the good stuff out of there. In Baltimore, where we just uh, helped develop the zero waste plan, deconstruction's been a major emphasis uh, for the local community for many years. And they have lots of vacant buildings and uh, they've been working to deconstruct their uh, vacant buildings as part of their fair development housing plan. The uh, One of the exciting things about deconstruction is the uh, the skills involved in deconstructing are just like construction skills, and there have been a lot of people trained in deconstruction that have had uh, challenging lives, and some of the unions have set up uh, some great training programs, particularly in Connecticut, I'm familiar, where uh, uh, Institute for Local Self-Reliance worked with the local unions to develop training programs for people to learn the skills for deconstruction and then when they had that experience they were able to move on into the more lucrative uh, construction industry so oh cool i mean i could also see that being um, a necessary kind of training program to ensure the safety of demolish you know the people doing the demolishing of, of buildings right. and, and recovering exactly. material there's a lot of potential hazards right. but i just want to right. share with you a quick story i don't know if i ever told you this one but there was the time where there were two houses on uh, B Street in Davis that were not particularly nice. They're just small old homes, but they had some historic significance. 
So the city wanted to preserve the homes, but the two properties were purchased by a developer that wanted to increase the density in the area and provide you know, mixed-use, multi-level housing, live-work space. So it was a good direction to go, but they needed to figure out a solution to preserve these structures and still meet their goals of you know, increasing housing density and you know, making money. Mm-hmm. So we actually, I say we, but I was involved in a um, nonprofit solar housing co-op. And I took this information to the board and proposed a, um, the, uh, a program where we would do what we called adaptive reuse of historic structures. Mm-hmm. And we um, worked with the city who had a, a lot available that they had a 50 year, you know, low rent, like lease for low income housing development on the other side of town. Mm-hmm. We picked up the houses and moved them across town, remodeled them a bit and made them a, uh, another co-op. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So we didn't have to even deconstruct them. We just picked them up and moved them. Exactly. Uh, and adaptive reuse is, is uh, used in a lot of different situations. Uh, it's one of the great tools. Um, in the Baltimore Zero Waste Plan, we, we call for adaptive reuse of the uh, vacant buildings now. And the uh, a part, part of the strategy there is uh, to get those into uh, the, the public domain and or nonprofits, community land trusts to take over the ownership of those buildings that speculators bought at low prices to just hold on to for decades, not caring about the impact on the community of that uh, and just waiting for uh, them to increase in value for them to get more money. And so um, there's an increasing movement toward saying if you're, if you're not using uh, and maintaining that property that you need to, it can be taken over. Uh, Essentially, uh, this happened uh, when I was uh, mayor of Loomis. uh, I was looking at how other uh, communities uh, during the Great Recession of 2008 and onward were evicting people, banks were evicting people out of their houses and then not maintaining them. And uh, speculator owners of properties were not maintaining them. And so in some communities, they they took them over if they weren't being maintained properly and then auctioned them off for uh, people to, to use them productively. Yeah, so, I mean, I've seen that kind of thing go both ways, right? Where, you know, like the Port of Los Angeles is leasing some historic uh-huh. dock space to SpaceX to build rockets. That's great. You know, they're able to maintain the historic character, but adapt the uh, facilities to meet their their needs but other situations i see like historic post offices and police departments and things like that that have been moved out of but they used to be public buildings that are now gyms or something like you have a 24-hour fitness inside this historic post office or something Mm -hmm. like that and it's like oh yeah you know it's kind of okay but it also is a shame to see these beautiful public buildings get turned into places that you can only get into if you pay for them or like pay this company to use their, right. their gym or well, service. I, I like to say that there's one definition of zero waste in the world, but there's lots of ways of getting there. And, uh, um, and, and that's the whole idea of zero waste plans is 
for the community and the stakeholders in the communities to all get together to say what uh, they'd like to see happen uh, with the resources. And there's lots of ideas, uh, as I mentioned, on the Zero Waste USA website and the EPA website about policies and programs that can be implemented. So in the zero waste planning, what we do is we we meet with lots of different groups uh, individually, meet with individual thought leaders, uh, we meet with public meetings, business leaders, religious leaders, and, and get everyone's input and then draft a plan and then review it through those stakeholders before coming up with the final plan. And that, that's what the zero waste planning process is all about, is that there, there's lots of, lots of different things that could be done. So it really depends on who wants to do what locally and who thinks uh, uh, what are the best ideas and getting consensus on those. And one of my favorite... Right. So, yeah, I want to hear what your, um, your favorite... Or maybe, let's do this. Let's do yeah. best idea that's come out of one of these stakeholder meetings that's um, yeah. been implemented, and then worst idea. Well, uh, one, of the, one of the best ideas was about to talk about was in Austin back in 2007 when we were working on their zero waste plan. We had reached out to the uh, network that was uh, involved with local foods, promoting the use of local foods, farm to fork, as they call it in Sacramento. Uh, all about it. All, all, all that great stuff. And that was a whole different network than had been involved in solid waste and recycling. And so we reached out to them, and there was this guy that came to the meeting we had of a focus group on organics, and his name was Phil Gosh. He said he he was listening to all this discussion about we need to compost our food scraps and we need to do things better with our food scraps. And he was soaking it all in, and then he said, well, you know, I've got this deal where I uh, I take a bunch of compost products uh, produced from chicken manure and other animal manures, and I uh, sell them to the local hardware store, uh, Home Depot. So he had the market for compostable products uh, at, at Home Depot locally in Austin. When he heard that, uh, that the, this was a huge need, that uh, over 50% of all the materials being thrown away were organics that needed to be composted or uh, do something better with it. He uh, ended up leasing a tract of land about 400 acres outside of Austin, got a permit to build a um, composting site, composting facility there uh, with windrow compost, uh, got state-of-the-art collection vehicles. And two years later, when we came back to work on the zero waste uh, resource recovery master plan, for Austin. He had over 100 accounts uh, that he was collecting from restaurants and hotels in the downtown area, composting this stuff, and the city hadn't even adopted any ordinance or requirements uh, for that to be done. He he just voluntarily saw the opportunity as an entrepreneur, invested in it, and and made it happen. And, you know, that's the type of uh, positive outcome uh, from uh, uh, the stakeholder approach is that you never know who's connected to whom or who might have the resources and the wherewithal to do uh, something new and better or what you'd like done, uh, but you're not sure how to do it. So, you know, getting everyone together really, really makes a, a big difference. Right. And I'm seeing that right now with local farmers that are having trouble accessing markets. They have all this food, but uh, no access to customers right now with farmers markets being closed and and whatnot. So there's a lot of interest in moving toward direct sales and CSA baskets and things like that. And um, 
hopefully this is you know a good opportunity and i've been trying to link up with them to offer this uh, hand sanitizer and reusable returnable bottles because mm -hmm. they can just return it to the csa pickup and then right you know it's all like um kind of localized and supporting your local farmers with without any waste and any packaging that you know is needed you can return and uh, have that continue to flow through the very short pathway between producer and consumer. Mm -hmm. So right. that, that's one of the, the silver linings I'm seeing with this uh, current crisis is a move to uh, motivate local producers and consumers to connect. Exactly. And, and um, similarly, the, uh, the China ban on taking our uh, poor quality materials, basically they, they were signaling for 10 years that they didn't want us to keep sending uh, bad quality materials to China. They kept adding new programs, uh, the, uh, the Green Fence and National Sword and Blue Skies and, and all, all, all about uh, trying to get everyone's attention, particularly in the U.S., to stop sending us this uh, poor quality material. And they finally just banned uh, taking it. And uh, uh, the the good news of, of that is that it's really gotten people's attention to stop wishful recycling. Don't don't just put stuff in the uh, recycling bin that you wish could be recycled or you thought might be. You need to check the list of what's acceptable in your your program because uh, uh, these are commodities. These are these are feedstock for industry. They need to meet specifications. And if you you put a bunch of uh, things that that are contaminants to that. You're just ruining the the whole program. Uh, so getting rid of wishful recycling, revisiting the design of a lot of programs. There's a lot of single stream programs out there, for example, that collect all types of recyclables in one uh, cart, and and that's right. been that's uh, the way it used to be. Well, the the uh, the, the single stream uh, recycling. Uh, oh no, um, sorry. Yeah, um, individuals source separation is how it used to be. Single stream is when you mix all of the recyclables into one blue bin. Right, right. And, and so the single stream uh, was easier for the garbage companies to implement who got into the field and was getting more quantity of materials collected, but a lot of those materials weren't recyclable. Uh, the single stream programs that are going to survive are ones that did things right, like in St. Paul, Eureka Recycling and EcoCycle in Boulder, Colorado. They, from the get-go, had said, don't do wishful recycling and, and emphasized what this market specifications were. In Eureka, um, in St. Paul, they were selling their paper to a local paper mill. They never went to China. They never sent it overseas. They, they sent it to a local paper mill. And so they were always keenly aware of what quality they needed to meet uh, that market uh, specification. So we, we uh, have seen from the China ban more attention being uh, paid to either better quality uh, programs for single stream or revisiting uh, dual stream programs, more source separation, and, and looking at bottle bills and other ways of, of getting cleaner quality materials. Right. So, and I'm all about these dual stream systems. Some places still use them. I know Davis right. and Berkeley... And, uh, you know, a few other communities around California are still doing that. And that's when you have the separate fibers, like paper, right. cardboard, et cetera. Um, and yeah. then, um, you know, your containers. 
And right. that is great for the, the recycling of paper because the containers tend to contaminate the, the fibers with either glass shards or liquids or food waste. And that just ruins the paper. The paper needs to be like clean and dry to yeah. get recycled. If it has any hope, you know, whether it's going to China or, or locally, you know, it can't be contaminated and still make it into paper. In fact, yeah, it can, you know, some soaked wet uh, paper, cardboard can contaminate quite a bit more uh, in the dumpster right. alongside that one piece. And I've done studies, uh, you know, assessing the contamination rates of different recycling streams or bins. Some facilities I've visited, MRFs, material recovery facilities, where they do the, the sorting uh, here in California, some are as low as around 50%. I think that that's the cutoff. You actually can no longer call yourself a recycling center if you're not diverting at least 50% of what you're taking in. And that happened recently in Santa Rosa before we had a you know, recology move in. The recycling center wasn't even hitting a 50% uh, diversion because they were getting like half of the stuff that they were bringing in was trash or, right. or um, just too dirty to recycle. We need to be thinking about other systems as well. In, in Europe, most of the curbside programs collect different material types on uh, each day of the week. So right. they collect paper on one day, glass on another day, metals on a third day. And you know, we've implemented programs in the U.S. that are all follow each other in, in many respects. But it's a big world out there, and there's been lots of innovations. We need to learn more from each other. Uh, and that's part of what Zero Waste is all about is you know, learning from each other, focusing on uh, rethinking, redesigning, uh, reducing, reusing as your first steps uh, before uh, implementing recycling and composting programs. And then for those programs, having a diversity of uh, approaches in Baltimore, uh, we called for a uh, port for a variety of composting uh, programs uh, with community-based composting at the at the heart of it all, where they've already been uh, developing community-based composting uh, uh, all over there. And New York City has community-based composting, uh, several hundred sites all over New York City. Right, and I've seen that in Mexico, too. Like, just in public parks, there'll be an area dedicated to right. composting where um, people right. that work in the park, you know, landscapers will help maintain the system. And people right. bring their food scraps when they go on a walk in the park uh-huh. and then, uh, you know, compost it there. Right. And okay, so we've also kind of strayed a bit in that your questions were uh, best idea, and that seemed like local organics collection or localized food well, producers. The, the, and, the, and the worst idea was uh, the single yeah. stream. Uh, right. Uh, okay. Uh, that, that's what I was uh, alluding to. I didn't say it outright, but you know, single stream by itself. Thanks for saying that. I agree. What, what, yeah. what wasn't a bad idea. It was poorly executed. And the people who were in charge of it were the cities. And they didn't realize they were in charge. <laughs> right. So it was done without the cities holding the haulers and processors responsible for uh, meeting no more than 5 or 10% residue rate. And because the cities didn't require that, the garbage companies found that they could, they could process up to 30 40% residue and ship that over to China and call it recycling. Uh, meet their goals. Um, so single stream by itself wasn't bad. It was the execution of it. Uh, and as I highlighted, Eureka and uh, EcoCycle and Boulder uh, both showed that you could do it right um, if, you, if you pay attention to the details. The other worst issue, not necessarily from zero waste 
realm, but the early days of, of pioneering and, re- and recycling in the 80s, uh, most of the curbside programs were funded out of grant programs. And in San Jose, where I was solid waste manager, right. we pioneered uh, uh, funding uh, the recycling programs out of the garbage rates. Yes. And, um, uh, so that was a huge breakthrough in uh, in actually getting funding on a, a regular, sustainable basis for the new curbside recycling programs of the day, and continued to this day. Uh, particularly, but it worked too well, right? But it worked too well and uh, became dominant. The garbage companies became the dominant force in the industry, not focusing on markets first and and market development and social and cultural behavioral changes uh, needed to to do the right stuff. So uh, uh, the the reliance on garbage rates to fund the programs and the garbage companies to fund the programs who weren't in the business of market development, weren't in the business of of cultural change and behavioral change. It, it was a huge breakthrough in the 80s, but we need to uh, we need to diversify. And in in Baltimore, the zero waste plan called the mission based recyclers and composters uh, as a new category for the city to specifically solicit people that are going to be partners with them in implementing new programs that have at the core, like Eureka Recycling and EcoCycle, the right stuff, the right values of what you're trying to achieve. Those can be nonprofits, they could be government operations, it could even be businesses that are um, part businesses that are dedicated to the triple bottom line. You know, uh, Gary, that's not actually what I was thinking when I said it worked too well. Um, that's an interesting right. take, but I, what I meant was that um, some communities were able to fund their recycling programs through their waste, like tipping fees, but right. then we diverted so much waste away from the landfills that there wasn't enough money from the tipping fees being generated to fund the recycling programs. Oh, well, that, that's just because those communities didn't figure out that there's lots of ways of <laughs> generating uh, cash. When I started in San Jose, uh, the city was getting $1.2 million uh, from the uh, waste system in uh, uh, franchise fees. And when I left, they were getting $26 million from a whole variety of uh, fees and taxes. Nice. The, the city got more than 50% of the revenue that was charged for uh, customers. And, and the rates for customers were still lower than surrounding communities. So San Jose took charge of the system, figured out how to get funding generated, and things that were pioneered in San Jose in that regard are being implemented around the country in lots of different uh, places. And in the uh, uh, zero waste training that Zero Waste USA does, we have a list of about 25 or 30 different uh, types of ways of generating revenue from uh, different aspects of programs to go forward. It's not just about landfill tipping fees. Uh, the, you know, there's hauling costs there, uh, that can have franchise fees charged to it. There's all, all sorts of different ways of structuring the funding. The, well, uh, Gary, I know you like getting into the nitty gritty here, but yeah. we are coming up on the hour here. So right. um, I want to start wrapping this up, but I, I did want to hear what you had to say about uh, something you mentioned briefly, and, and that was the triple bottom line. What is the triple bottom line? People, planet, and profits. Um, uh, instead of just uh, by, by design, companies in America are required by law to meet their stockholders' interests, financial interests. But part B 
B corporations are incorporated under new laws, state and federal laws that allow them to also consider people and the planet uh, as part of their core values of what they're trying to do as a company. And we've found that a number of zero waste businesses are part B corporations because and have embraced zero waste as, as part of that. And we find that the uh, people who uh, uh, work for them are very happy uh, uh, to be part of uh, companies that care about the environment, care about the people, the people in the community, the people that work there. The triple bottom line is uh, a core idea of uh, what zero waste is all about, uh, working towards environmental and social justice at the same time as working for efficiency and good uh, economics. Oh, great explanation. And I'm sorry to cut cut this conversation short. We might have to do another episode with you as a guest because there's just so much good information that you have and so much experience in uh, designing these kind of not only goals, but uh, physical plans and, and whatnot. So I'm going to include a lot of links in the podcast description so that our listeners can learn more about your work and the other organizations that were mentioned on today's episode. That'd be but, great. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to thank you again for coming on and being a guest on the Trash Talk podcast and hope to talk to you again soon. Okay, thank you, Michael. And thanks to everyone who's listening. Uh, zero waste is important for our future and uh, you can be part of that. Right on. Thanks, Gary. Take care. Bye.